The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. We've got a fun one today. Novelist Lori Frankel is here to discuss Shakespeare's Hamlet. Today on the History of Literature. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the podcast. I had fun. I had fun. I hope you do as well. Did I mention why I had fun? <laughs> Did I leave you in suspense? I had fun with our guest, Lori Frankel. This one is Geek Out City, which is fun if the topic is a good one. For me, that probably means either the Beatles or some great author, which I think Shakespeare qualifies there, right, as a great writer. My guest, Lori Frankel. Man, she is as much of a sucker for Shakespeare as I am. We get into soups, <laughs> Shakespeare's soups, soups and stews. We spoke a while ago, she and I, so I haven't heard this for a few weeks. I'm looking forward to listening right along with you. It's not always the case with these things, frankly. But here today with Lori, it is Hamlet. What a rich treasure trove of literary goodness that is. Hamlet's not a, a bauble, people. It's not a, a nifty little jewel that we set into some precious little locket and take it out from time to time to admire. It's a wild wreck of a play, a ship that sometimes... <laughs> Tripping all over myself today. A ship that sometimes sails in smooth weather and sometimes careens this way and that. It's mast toppling over, and it's rigging all shot to hell. Hamlet. What a treat. We also talk about Lori's work. She's a novelist, and her new novel, 123, is available now. 123 is a timely, topical novel about love and family that will make you laugh and cry and laugh again. It's been chosen by the New York Times editors and Reese Witherspoon as their select books. That's a pretty good pedigree for a book. Nancy Pearl says, quote, I loved 123 from start to finish, end quote. She praises Lori Frankel for her engrossing plots and calls her a terrific storyteller. And she says her characters leap off the page and into the heart of the reader. Three-dimensional characters. Ms. Pearl emphasizes, well, guess what, people? The secret to Lori's success has been a secret, but we're revealing it now right here today on the History of Literature podcast. It's Shakespeare. She is a Shakespeare junkie. In her email to me, I asked her for a book to discuss, and she said, I would take Hamlet, but I suppose everyone takes Shakespeare. And I said, actually, nobody has. And she said something like, how can I be the first? How can, how can other people not be thinking of Shakespeare when I can think of nothing else? Something like that. That's when I knew that this would be fun. Engrossing plots, terrific storytelling, three-dimensional characters. Well, I think Ms. Frankel has been learning from the bard in all those categories. One, two, three tells the story of some triplets 
who are living in a town that's been blasted by a chemical plant. Amazon named it one of its best books of June 2021. You are welcome for the recommendation, people. Go seek it out. While I'm at Amazon checking out the reviews of 123, I took a look at the reviews for Hamlet. Not that we need to search too hard for praise of that book, but with classic works like Moby Dick and The Scarlet Letter and John Steinbeck's books and Beloved, it works like that, required reading, I like to take a look to see if those books are being attacked. Something that I enjoy about that, seeing the voice of the beleaguered readers, <laughs> sometimes teachers, requires students to write Amazon reviews, which I don't really recommend. I think it dilutes the reviews. Here, I'm sort of hypocritical. I just said I liked reading them, but I also don't really like reading them. I don't like seeing the books and the reviews clouded by uh, people who don't really want to be there reviewing those books. Other books get to have readers who want to write reviews. If someone is doing it as a requirement, and they're, they're a little more blasé than you usually get. Usually you get passion. Even people who don't like a book, or even people who feel neutral about a book, are passionate about their neutrality. But when you're required to write a review, that all goes away. Sometimes you're just typing out words at that point. Well, if someone is, you get bitterness and anger. Sometimes. One star. I hated it. It was boring. I'd rather be outside. I don't know why we had to read this. That's not really fair to the work, is it? But Hamlet, if any work ever did not need our help, our cluck clucking, it's Hamlet. I think Hamlet's place is secure enough in the canon to survive in the canon, in the in civilization. I think its place is secure enough to survive a few disgruntled Middle schoolers carping about the choices of their, no doubt, well-intentioned teacher. So, here we go. Hamlet. This is on Amazon. Hamlet, the Folger Library Shakespeare edition. It's the number one bestseller in British and Irish dramas and plays. Not bad, Mr. Shakespeare. Dark Side of the Moon was on the bestseller list, the Billboard Top 100 for how long? 20 years or something longer? Well, Hamlet's... Still topping the charts 400-plus years later. Or as Abraham Lincoln might say, Abraham Lincoln was a huge Shakespeare fan, by the way. He had three books on his desk at the White House. One of them was the works of Shakespeare. He also loved Rabbi Burns, our old Scottish friend, and some claimed that Lincoln knew all of Burns's works by heart. That's probably an exaggeration, but we know he knew some of the poems, at least. By heart, and we know that he loved Rabbi Burns. We also know that Lincoln didn't care for novels too much. He preferred poetry. He started Ivanhoe and didn't finish it. Set novels aside. Not for me. There we go. Thank you very much to a pair of Scotsmen. Rabbi Burns and Sir Walter Scott, you gave our greatest politician... In America, the pleasure of poetry, and you cut him off from novels altogether. You batted 500 when it came to influencing Honest Abe for the better. He was a fan of Leaves of Grass when that came out, and a fan of Don Juan or Don Juan by Byron, which he 
hid from his wife for some reason. <laughs> Didn't want her to know he was reading such a licentious work, I suppose. He did read the novel of, speaking of novels, he read the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, which moved him, but I think he was reading it not just because it was a preference of his to read, but because he was reading it with an eye toward the political effects that it would have on the nation. That's the book that started the war, he said, or I guess what he said, or the quote was about Harriet Beecher Stowe. He said, so you're the little woman who started this great war. Some have doubted whether he actually said this, but it has the ring of truth to it. Where was I going? Why did I bring up Lincoln? Guess what? This was a long way. <laughs> this is a long way to get this little sip of water. Long way of getting at what I was going for, which was very simple. I'm almost embarrassed now to return to it. I was going to say that Hamlet was on top of the charts, and it was pretty incredible to see that 400 plus years later, or as Lincoln might say, for a play written 20 score and 12 years ago. That's a big divergence into Lincoln. We should do an episode on Lincoln. I've thought about one just on the Gettysburg Address, whole episode devoted to that bit of prose, but maybe Lincoln as a reader would be a good episode. Politicians as readers and literature lovers would be another good one too. Lincoln, Churchill, Obama, Vaclav Havel, even George W. Bush used to read great works when he was in office. So far this year, I've read two Shakespeare's, he said proudly. Okay. Hamlet on Amazon and the Folger version has gotten 4,874 customer reviews. It's sitting at 4.5 stars. And hang on. Look at this. It's number one in British and Irish dramas and plays, but it's only number two in Shakespeare dramas and plays. Meaning, apparently, Shakespeare wrote a play that was not a British or Irish drama or play. Amazon, you have outdone yourself once again. Sometimes the algorithms are not as smart as people. Although they're cheaper and they deliver the goods. I know that. I know that firsthand. I used to work there. And here are the negative reviews. I went through them quickly. Not really looking for any to pull out for you. But one says, one star, the pages are falling out. Another one says, one star, many typos. Another one says, one star, advertisements that came with it were not mentioned. There's a pattern here, which is that the people who are giving Hamlet five stars are talking about the play itself. And the people who give Hamlet one star are talking about the version, the edition of the play, the printing or the publisher, the ebook, and so on. But Amazon tends to mash these together sometimes which is understandable for books that don't get too many reviews. There might be 12 different versions of it, an audiobook, a large print book, a, uh, a paperback, a hardcover. If you only have 20 reviews altogether, you kind of want to know all 20, right? Give you some sense so you can read the reviews. But when we're talking about a book like this, and some people are railing against the audiobook, and others are talking about the large print version, and some are looking at the ebook, and so on. Hmm. What does that mean for someone who's thinking about whether they should read Hamlet? It doesn't even tell them if they should buy that version. Confusing. But in the end, four and a half stars for Hamlet. Lots of one-star reviews that might turn you off. Uh, 
You might look at our podcast and say, haven't you done enough Shakespeare? Didn't you already do a whole episode on Hamlet and here we are with another one? Well, I'm going to quote Paul McCartney here, who actually the Beatles performed Shakespeare. Have you ever seen that clip? Maybe we'll play that sometime, although it seems like maybe maybe we already have. I've got one for you coming up that we haven't. Paul McCartney was talking about the album called The Beatles, a.k.a. The White Album, when the Beatles returned from their trip to India with their heads crammed with ideas and music pouring out of their fingertips and those golden throats of theirs like magic. George was coming into his own as a songwriter, and Ringo had some songs. And they put out a double album, those four, the wild and woolly accomplishment of the White Album, stuffed with music and musical invention and, let's be honest, genius. And some people said, you know, if you had made that one album with the best tracks and really produced those, really focused on those, the White Album would have been as good as Sgt. Pepper, as good as Abbey Road. It might have been the best album ever. George Martin was one of the ones who said that. I wish they'd have let me select the tracks. We could have really made a classic album out of those tracks. And Paul hemmed and hawed and took that seriously. Yes, maybe I know people have said that. One album instead of two. And then his patience ran out with his interviewer, and he probably got to thinking of all the great songs that were on that album, everything that would have been left out. And he said, well, we're going to hear what he said. This is Sir Paul McCartney. You know, I'm, I'm not a great one for that. You know, maybe it was too many of that. Look, what do you mean? It was great. It sold. It's the bloody Beatles White Album. Mm. Shut up. Mm. It's great. It sold. It's the bloody Beatles White Album. Shut up. Well, Shakespeare's not here, but we can speak for him. Pages falling out, printing hard to read. Perform too much, perform not enough, too long, too short, too boring, too exciting, too much going on. Eh, eh, it's great, it's sold, it's the bloody Shakespeare's Hamlet. Shut up. So think of that. I'm not telling you to shut up, by the way. I would never do that. My dear listeners, I'm glad you're here, as always. That was my voice of Shakespeare addressing his critics. Who are those critics? We'll get into that with Laurie. We'll also get into Shakespeare's passionate advocates, and Shakespeare's censors, and everything else within and without those covers. All is fair game for us on stage and off, lines and actors and killer soliloquies and killer characters, literally. A tragedy, a happy ending, which is it, or is it both, or is it neither? All of that, and my guest, Lori Frankel, after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Lori Frankel, the best-selling and award-winning author of three and now four novels. Her latest work, One, Two, Three, is out as of June 8th, 2021. Lori's writing has appeared in the New York Times and The Guardian and a number of other publications, and she was recently named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle. Lori Frankel, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you. I always forget that part of the of the intro, and it's really funny <laughs> um, <laughs> because I, sometimes I think I'm not even the most influential woman in my household. <laughs> well, you're um, but thank you, thank you for having me. I'm I'm really thrilled to be doing this today. Okay, so we're going to get to Hamlet, but first, let's hear a little more about you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Maryland. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am very much an East Coaster in my soul. It mm. is something that people sometimes guess about me, like before I've even opened my mouth. Oh, uh, right. And and almost immediately thereafter, because people in Seattle are very, they talk, they're very calm and they yes. speak very slowly. And I am not and do not. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And are you one of the people who likes to put a, a kayak on your the roof of your car and take off for the weekend and and be leisurely or are you more comfortable in the the bookshops and and coffee houses of the world both i think if i can manage Good. Seattle is funny because it's only nice like a, f a few months a year yeah, um, or at yeah. least like reliably <laughs> nice a few months a year right, and so yeah. it's hard not to use them right. um and, you know, and, and just kind of insist on being being outside and in the water and um, gallivanting mountains, whatever, um, when when you can. And it's nice because it's a nice it's a nice long season, whereas the East Coast is the, their nice days are more spread out, which is very, very hot in the summer. Mm, and so yeah. you, you might want to be outside, but instead find yourself in a bookstore, which is always a great place to find yourself. Yeah. But it's a it's a different thing out here, I think. Yeah, I used to marvel at people in Seattle that would just have their door open. They could just leave yeah. it open and just to get some air. And they weren't worried about bugs. They weren't worried about pollen. Right. It was just right. to get that clean air just flowing through the house uh, yeah. by having your front door wide open is just an incredible, says says a lot about the climate. It does. It's amazing to me. Um, when I first came out here, what struck me is that people didn't have screens on their windows because yeah, you right. can open the windows and <laughs> thousands of mosquitoes don't come in and eat you. It's really, it's quite wonderful. Yeah. I, can't, I can't recommend it highly enough, actually. <laughs> okay. But I know people in Seattle like to keep that a bit of a secret. So we'll it's tell true. everyone that it's rainy and gloomy rainy and uh, day, stay away. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which so... is certainly true lots of the time. <laughs> so uh, when you were growing up in, in Maryland, what kind of childhood did you have or what, what sort of kid were you? Were you one with your nose in the books? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I was I was always reading a book. I am still 
always reading a book. I'm still that kid. I'm almost never not reading a book. Mm, um, mm-hmm. And and it and it was a great. It was a really wonderful childhood. And and I also did a lot of bike riding and um, and being outside. But but mostly while I was outside, I was reading a book. I guess I wasn't reading a book while riding a bike, but I was often um, you know sitting outside yeah. and reading a book or taking a walk and and reading a book. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like it was a really wonderful childhood on account of being fairly bookish. I spent a lot of time at the library. Yeah, we've had a lot of guests and and certainly we've looked at a lot of writers who felt alienated in their childhood for some reason. They they didn't feel like they fit in for whatever reason and and books were kind of a retreat and and writing fiction was kind of an escape. Does that resonate with you or did you uh, have a different sort of childhood? I think I did have a different sort of childhood and and me too. I hear that all the time from mm-hmm. people that yeah. they they turned to books because because they felt sad or they felt scared or they felt alone. Um and that they turned to writing for the same reason. And and so I feel in some ways like I mean I've been so lucky because I I get the I get the best of both. Yeah. I I I I felt I felt loved and, you know, and a part of things as much as, as much as I think you ever do when you're a little kid. Um, and my parents are great and, uh, my family was great. And, and yet also I wanted to read everything all the time. And, and that is how I feel still. I'm very, very grateful for the wonderful things and the wonderful people in my life. Um, and, and also I want to read about everybody else's life too. And also I want to write about stuff I made up. Um, so I feel in some ways, like the, it's this incredible good luck that I, I get to have all of the above mm. or I didn't have to earn one of them right, by being right. miserable in the other one. Right. And that resonates with me as well. That that kind of rings true for how it was for me growing up in a, a comfortable household. Not comf- I don't mean well off or anything, but just, uh, <laughs> you know, if I had uh, good parents and a lot of friends and everything, but I still love to read. And I'm wondering if we have another thing in common. I saw one of your books is set in Madison, Wisconsin. I was wondering if you had a connection there. Ah, so I've, I mean, I've been, but, but otherwise not a personal connection. Mm. Um, I, I have visited, um, and I, and I loved it. Does it, does loving it count as a connection? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, thought maybe you had gone to school there. Uh, I, but I did not go to, I, I very flirted with going to school there. Yeah. Um, I, I came close to going to school there. I think I would have, I think it is too cold for me. Mm. I suspect that, yeah. uh, that I, that I'm just one of those people who, who couldn't quite handle that, that much cold. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like 55 is, is about as low as, as I feel is reasonable if I also have to go out of doors. Right. Um, right. So that probably rolls out Madison, you know, that, that book, the, the first third of it, I wanted to set somewhere in the middle and, um, and, and Madison is this really beautiful hmm. place that is, that is middle in a, in a very interesting way, I think in a, in a different way than, than we often think of. Um, and, and so it, it, it ticked a lot of boxes for me yeah. um, and I have happy memories of, of visiting and of, of how beautiful it is. Yeah. But, um, but that's about it. I, I do. I, I know a lot of people who are in Seattle who came from Madison or from Minneapolis. Uh, it seems like when people in Wisconsin and Minnesota look to the West Coast, there's something familiar about Seattle and, and that and that area that maybe yeah. they, uh, you know, I, I would say if yeah. you were to mash together Maryland and Seattle, Madison might be a pretty good approximation of, think, of what you would get. 
<laughs> I think that is exactly right. That's exactly what I think. What, did you go to school there? No, I grew up, I went to school in Chicago, but I, I grew up, uh, I guess, about 20 or 30 minutes from Madison and my my mom had gone there and my sister and uh, all of a lot of my high school friends and, and so on. Sure, sure. Yeah, I don't think anyone has ever described Madison as Seattle plus Maryland, but I think that's exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, and one more thing before we get to your latest book, I'm wondering if the theater was part of your upbringing or where you, when and where you discovered Shakespeare. Yeah. Oh gosh, um, it's such a good question. I. I I, I, my parents took me to a lot of theater um, mm. as a child and it stuck. My mother often jokes that this was like a very expensive mistake on her part because <laughs> they, they thought, like, oh, this would be a fun thing to take our little girl to, you know, see a, uh, the high school production of Peter Pan at age four. And I and I haven't stopped since. Um, right. It's also true that I am a bad actor. So, oh, yeah, um, my so it's it was just a question of um, where and how I might my outlets for loving theater it's um it's interesting for me because it's such a contrast with with reading and writing that because I, I feel very much like I love to read I I was good at reading and that led naturally to my wanting to write hmm. whereas I loved theater I I was good at being an audience member of the theater but there's there's no way for me to actually you know go into theater yeah. um except for you know except for maybe writing it um so and and I love that for me. I mean, it's it's been a really hard year for theater, obviously. Mm, um, yeah. But but it is otherwise something that I imagine will always be part of my life. And and just as a spectator and I I don't read anymore just as a reader. I read as a writer. But I but I sit in the audience of the theater and, and just and just feel full of joy. Yeah, I, yeah. Would, I would like to think that theater is going to be come back stronger than ever. I would like it, to think that too. It just feels like it's like we're be, we've been stuffed into a cannon and we're going to explode. You know, it just <laughs> it, we're going to come out of this and an experience like sitting in a theater watching a live performance just feels like something uh I feel like for the rest of my life my I'm not going to take for granted and I will be seeking out. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And I and I think that all of the the arguments that that people were making in in fear and sometimes in despair and um, and sometimes with you know just shakes of their head like oh theater is a dying art because we have so many other options now mm. and you know why you can just go to the movies you can just watch television uh, you can just you know look at videos on your phone um, why go to the theater when you have social media I I feel like if nothing else <laughs> we have learned this year that that no there there is no substitute for that connection there is no substitute for for being in a room live with people telling stories together yeah. um and so I think I I think you're right I think it's going to come back um and I I for one cannot wait <laughs> yeah okay so at some point uh, you started writing books yourself. Was that something you were doing at a young age or did that come in your adult years? I was always writing something. Mm -hmm. um, I For a while, I was on an academic path. Uh, so I thought, so I was writing uh, you know, very academic, uh, papers mostly, you know, mm -hmm. uh, for school and such. Um, and it, which is a very, very different kind of writing and a very, ex 
exclusive sort of writing. Uh, that is when I was in graduate school and um, and thinking about going on an academic job market, the idea that I would be writing fiction was, um, it, 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 I mean, it's not, it wasn't even discouraged because it wasn't on the table. Mm, uh-huh. um, and and so um, it really took my my leaving graduate school and my leaving the the job market in, in quite that way in order for me to be able to turn to fiction, which is really I, I I think that by by disposition I am a novelist. It is it is what I mostly read and it mm. is what I mostly write and. But I, but I also think that, uh, at least for me, I, I did not know whether or not I could write a novel and, until I had written it. So it was also really a question of of timing. Um, I was teaching full time, but I was not in a in a situation where I was trying to publish academic texts. Mm. And so therefore, I had these two months of summer, um, sort of between handing in grades and, and prepping syllabus for the next year, when I when I could actually sit down for the first time in my life, in my, I guess, late 20s, and, and see whether or not I could write a novel. And, um, and then it turned out that I could, which I which I did not realize until I had already done it. Right. So it, it took some ex- experimenting, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And then your new book, One, Two, Three, I don't want to describe too much because I know there's a secret at the center of it. So I don't know how much you want to reveal or or whether we should just provide the setup. Uh, But I'll, I'll follow your lead. What's the book about? I appreciate that so much. It's such a good question and one that I have not quite figured out how to answer. What yeah. I want to say to like everyone in the world is, oh, just trust me. Just, just yeah. go in. <laughs> right, Don't right. know anything about it and buy several copies, <laughs> really. Um, and give them out to your friends and just read it and and then you'll know what it's about. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I realized, of course, that I, I cannot do that. Um, it, but it does. It, it has all of these um, these surprises and that I that I sort of want you to, to find out along the way. Um, yeah. But the pitch I have for it is this. It is about teenage triplets, sisters, who live in a very small town with a very dark past, which turns out not to be so past after all. Mm. Okay. That's my, that's my sentence worth of pitch. Um, that's good. Thank you. I thank you. <laughs> it's, I, <I'm, laughs> because the book is not out yet. I am, I am a little bit new to talking about it. I've been writing it for three years, four years. Um, right. but I, but I'm not, but I'm just new to the, to the world of of pitching it. Um, I suppose the other thing that I, that I say by way of introduction is that um, they live, they live downstream from a defunct chemical plant that was polluting their water before they were born mm. on account of which fact they and, and their town and everyone in it have some fairly significant challenges, um, some fairly significant fallout from, from that pollution. And um, when that plant turns out not to be quite as defunct as one might ideally hope, they have to figure out how to take matters into their own hands. Mm. Okay. That sounds good. And also <laughs> you. you have a track record. So people, they can check out your first books, you know, or the reviews of those books if they want to see, if they want to uh, put themselves in your hands and enter your world. Yes. Oh, Jack, that's, that's a lovely way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> that's very kind. <laughs> okay. Well, one last thing before we get started with our draft here, which I'm really excited about. You, I keep reading that you make good soup. And oh. <laughs> that actually, I thought, well, let's, let's, uh, I don't know, somehow I went down the rabbit hole of Shakespeare and his soups. And I'm wondering, have you ever 
uh, tried to make an Elizabethan soup or uh, done any digging into the kind of soup that Shakespeare would have drank? Okay, that is such an excellent question. (laughs) (laughs) The short answer tragically is no, for the uh, simple reason that Shakespeare, well, Elizabethan diet is fairly meaty and and I'm vegetarian. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really, it's so disappointing. I thought that, yeah. I do get on that kick where I'm super interested in like, do I want mutton? Is mutton yes. a thing that I'm missing out on? Uh, but but the truth is, I, I you know my like mead mead might be the only overlap yeah. between my diet and Shakespeare. And yeah. honestly, that um, is is probably just com- completely different. You know, even I mean, one of the things that I think about all the time is how much water I drink mm. and. And how that is actually, I mean, some of why I was thinking about it is, is because of the book, um, you know, which is very much about water and, and uh, you know, and the potability of. But, um, you know, in Elizabethan England, they, it's not like you could, I mean, first of all, it's not like you just turn on your tap and, and, and get some water to drink. Right, but right. also it was much healthier to drink beer or wine yeah, uh, right. or something that might kill off a little of the bacteria that was bound to be in there. Yeah. And, uh, and so from that on down, I think my diet doesn't overlap too much with theirs. Yeah. Okay. Well, Shakespeare, you don't have the, uh, the boiled beef and mutton that he, uh, (laughs) enjoyed in his broth, but you, uh, he didn't have cocoa or coffee. So I guess, uh, you know, that's, that's a trade-off that you, you would probably take. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that diet to diet, I would win. (laughs) (laughs) I also read that they liked their soups sweet, but they didn't really have sugar. They didn't have a lot of sugar. It was very new. So they it was mostly sweetened with dried fruits. So that made me think that uh, the soup uh, and, and one soup maybe you could have had was pottage, a, a vegetable soup thickened with oats, which uh, oh. doesn't, you know, sounds like it, it could be worth trying maybe with a few dried fruits thrown in to give it a little bit of... Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I would not call that soup. I would call that oatmeal. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that's very. This is such an interesting thing. I don't know. I feel like, uh, oh, maybe I, maybe I should get down that. It's as you call yeah. it. It's a rabbit hole, and yeah. um, and see that's, what I can do. If the powers that be at Starbucks are listening, they will probably <laughs> yeah. uh, they could rename their oatmeal dish as you know Shakespeare stew or something and uh, <laughs> market it that yes. way. I would buy that. I absolutely <laughs> buy that. Okay, so let's move on to our draft. We are going to take 10 great things about Hamlet, which I am so excited about. But as always with our guests, I will let you take the first pick. What is your first choice for a great thing about Hamlet? Okay, this was really hard. I, by way of preparation, I made, I I thought of like 20 things just in case, in part because I misunderstood. (laughs) I thought I was going to pick 10 things and I thought, what if you pick the same 10 things as I picked? And and I came up with 20 without breaking a sweat. (laughs) But so then I had to order them, which is really, really hard. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, by way of introduction, what I want to, what I, what I feel like, I have to say first about Hamlet is it's really long. Mm, it's uh, yep. it's like twice as long as Midsummer Night's Dream. This is thirty three thousand plus words, yeah. um, and I think that my favorite thing about Hamlet is that they they boil down to two of them, to two words for me, hmm. uh, which is let be, which is hmm. the end of the special providence and the fall of the sparrow speech, um, which is my which is my favorite. Uh, part of the play, um, which in some ways I, I feel is is cheating because it's starting with the ending, but it's okay. It's Hamlet. It can happen out of order and, and we can go back. Um, it's this very beautiful 
lesson and, and a very hard and difficult thing that he comes to over the course of this really long and epic play. Um, it's this very kind of Zen sentiment, which is, I, I cannot control this. There are terrible things that have happened and are going to happen. And, and I just have to, and I just have to let it be. Mm. Um, and so that's, that's where he gets to. There's a special providence in the fall of the sparrow. If it be now, tis not to come. If it be not to come, it will be now. If it be not now, yet it will come. The readiness is all. Um, mm. And then he gets to this, to this uh, very anti to be or not to be place at the end of that, which is, since no man of aught he leaves knows, what is it to leave betimes? Let be. And I, and I'm just so taken with, uh, with all of those words, yeah. the longest of Shakespeare's plays by far, and, and boiling it down to just, just two words. Yeah. And you know, let be is not in every version. I know. Oh, oh sorry. I screamed and I, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They take that out. <laughs> um, I, it's super. The uh, the difference between the extant versions of Hamlet is itself yeah. something we could have done a whole show about. Yeah, yeah. So your your favorite part is only in certain. You you said there were two words, and that's not even in every version. So interesting. Well, I will take my first pick and I will just piggyback on that then. This was actually my number two, but I'll bump it up to number one. And that is, I love that it's not a perfect play. It's not this uh, perfectly polished jewel and it's not honed. It's so uneven and ragged and, and yet it might be the greatest play ever and maybe the greatest work of literature ever. It's on the short list for that. And yet, it's repeatedly noted for its weaknesses and directors often cut out almost an hour of lines that they think can be lost. And and no one says, you know, this is one of those masterpieces you can't remove a single word of. Uh, and other critics, I mean, T.S. Eliot called it an artistic failure. <laughs> and the actors who play Hamlet say it's confusing and frustrating and that lines constantly negate themselves and they don't know how to play yeah. the part. And and yet it keeps getting performed over and over the most produced play ever and the most talked about and the most interpreted. And, and it feels like because it's not this perfect play with this perfect meaning, nobody owns it. You know, that it's not, there's no critics who have defined it. It it constantly gives us something to talk about and, and debate and argue about and, and, you know, praise or condemn. And, and when we read criticism of the play over the years, this is from a history of literature perspective. Maybe I should have taken this as number one because I like this so much. You can read the interpretations or the criticism of the play over the years and you can see what that period was emphasizing and what they valued and what they appreciated or what they didn't understand about the play. And so you can kind of, you can use Hamlet criticism over time as almost a, a map to uh, the history of literature, just by looking at what writers and, and theater goers thought of Hamlet. And I've, I've jotted down a, a, the famous criticism here of Voltaire, where he oh, wrote, yeah. uh, quote, in the tragedy of Hamlet, the go he hated the play. And he, he said, <laughs> uh, in the tragedy of Hamlet, the ghost of a king appears on the stage. Hamlet becomes crazy in the second act and his mistress becomes crazy in the third. The prince slays the father of his mistress on the pretense of killing a rat. The heroine throws herself into the river. In the meanwhile, another of the actors conquers Poland. 
Hamlet, his mother, <laughs> and his father all carouse on the stage. Songs are sung at table. There's quarreling, fighting, killing. It is a vulgar and barbarous drama, which would not be tolerated by the vilest populace of France or Italy. One would imagine this piece to be the work of a drunken savage. <laughs> <laughs> So Which is great. And funny. yet, you know, it, it it once it got rolling with the public, it has never really left the public imagination. And in and it really more than maybe any other work, it has it has entered our DNA. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And for I mean, in part it's be, it's because it's so long. You can cut two hours of this thing yeah, and right. still have right. <laughs> the light of the theater. Yeah. And and that that and that's not that's not cheating. That's, that's, it's, in fact, you almost have to do it because, because mm, life is mm-hmm. short and, and Hamlet is not. Yeah. And, and so, so then your, you know, your question when you're faced with it really is, um, as, it, as I think it always is in, in Shakespeare. And as I suppose you could argue is, is always true of all, of all plays of anything you want to put on the stage, but definitely with Hamlet, where the question is like, what Hamlet do you want to tell? Or, yeah. or what do you want to use this play to tell? And, and whatever it is, it's in there somewhere, which yeah. is itself, it seems to me, a minor miracle. Yeah. It's like those I've, I've heard of, you know, actors will often say, I, I'm, I'm too old to play Hamlet now, or I'm in my 30s. I'm a little, it's a little late to play Hamlet. But I was reading there, there have been versions with Hamlet. It was, was played by a five-year-old and Hamlet has been played by a 90-year-old. Yes. Yes. Wow. That it would take a lot of it would take a lot of energy to, <laughs> to, to play Hamlet at 90. Um, and yeah. I, would like, I would see the five-year-old. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it, and what that means, too, is that when it comes around in, in your, your neighborhood theater, your local rep, uh, you know, whatever it is, um, any new production of Hamlet is, is going to be completely different from any Hamlet that you saw before. Um, yeah. It's, it's going to be a, a totally new experience. And it's one that you're very unlikely to to, to understand, get your mm, head around yeah. going in, um, you know, as opposed to other plays where, you know, where you read in the, in the advertising, say yeah. like, oh, this is, you know, it's a Twelfth Night, but it's been updated. It's, it's set in, or, you know, it's set in ancient Greece. And you're like, okay, I, I understand. I know what that's going to be. And, right. and that is just never true of Hamlet. They say to me like, oh, this is going to be Hamlet, but it's going to be set in an office building. And I think, okay, yeah, I, I, that gives me no information at all, yeah, which yeah. is exactly how I want to go in. Yeah. <laughs> and the film versions are all different too. Okay. Yeah. So what is your number two? Well, I'm going to rearrange it because it's going to go off of what you were just talking okay. about, which is that every time you, you come back to this play, there's something, there's something new in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, what struck me this time came off of um, Hamlet says time is out of joint. And I thought, I mean, if there is a better encapsulation of the year we have just had, then time is out of joint. Mm. I, I I haven't heard it. And, and so I was sort of reading this play um, for the hundredth plus time for, to prepare to have this conversation with a, with this sort of COVID lens, um, to, to see w- what there is to learn from Hamlet about that. And, and what struck me this time was the virtue that, that Hamlet speaks of about, about caution and, and patience, um, the, the virtue of caution and patience that, um, Hamlet is often accused of being indecisive, which I don't buy at all, but, 
this idea that the appropriate response to to great loss and and grief and and deaths which are avoidable and horrible is in fact slow it's it's slow and and cautious and mindful and and i think that hamlet makes an incredible um argument for that over the course of of all of these words Mm, yeah that's such a such a great phrase it it, uh philip k dick used it for the title of a novel i think i wonder how many novels have uh or other works have uh titles that were drawn from phrases and words in uh, <laughs> it oh, must be in gosh. the hundreds yeah so many oh i wonder if it's in the thousands it must be yeah. <laughs> it it must be so many what i actually often wonder too is how many are and and nobody noticed mm, and right. like the author the novelist thinks like oh i'm, I'm making this really important commentary about hamlet and, and nobody actually noticed because hamlet is also full of full of references that you know phrases we say every day and, and yeah don't, don't realize are from hamlet okay so this is gonna that's a perfect segue for my number two this was actually my number one and yeah. it's uh i owe this to marjorie garber and her uh her wonderful book shakespeare after all which is what kind of put me onto this but i was thinking about how you know this is a play where shakespeare really rises to the occasion in in so many places where for example the the to be or not to be soliloquy is right where it needs to be act 3 scene 1 right in the middle it's like he either he knew what he had here and he positioned it in the play that, that or he just sometimes you get the feeling he just thinks okay here's where i have to put the you know the indelible masterpiece of a soliloquy would be good here and then just, you know, set himself to write it. But there are also the, uh, uh, there are also instances where he's got language that are little moments of poetry or asides that are so familiar to us that when you read the play for the first time or when you first see it performed, you think, I knew this, I've heard yeah. this. And like we were just talking about the the phrases that have become titles of other works, like Outrageous Fortune or Slings and Arrows or, you know, and you, it, it gives us this feeling that you're already culturally aware of so much in Hamlet. And it makes the reading experience almost like... Uh, you know, like you're you're gathering these Easter eggs or something. Yeah. Uh, and what Marjorie Garber had pointed out was there are uh, four expressions that are very well known. And and what's interesting about them is that although they're very specific to the play, they've risen above the play to become universal, to stand for something else, even oh, though they're yeah. really specific. So the four that she mentions are, alas, poor Yorick. And something is rotten in the state of Denmark, and the lady protests too much, methinks. And there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And and they're so tied to the play that Yorick, Denmark, the lady, and Horatio, but (laughs) none of those are famous because of their relevance to the play. They're famous because they're so insightful into human psychology. So we think of, alas, poor Yorick, and we... We don't think, oh yeah, that was the moment when you know the character Yorick was 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 being remembered or something. We think of it just generally as a lament for human mortality and the the way we all share this fate of of humanity with death and loss as being inevitable, and and yet we're aware of that fact, which is such a human 
uh, problem. And and rotten in the state of Denmark is is it doesn't take us back to the history of Denmark in the Middle Ages, but it it's it stands for corruption anywhere. The feeling that politicians and governments are lousy and they're full of greedy manipulators who are unworthy of power. We can use that phrase, you know, something's rotten in the state of Denmark about any country at any time. And and Horatio is famous not because we care so much about Horatio at that moment, but because we know dreamers and we know smart philosophers <laughs> and people who think they have the, the answer to everything, but it's abstract and it doesn't always match with reality and, and the reality of the world. And then the line about the lady, uh, the lady who protests too much, it's not even really yeah. about a character we care about. It's it's in the play within a play, <laughs> but it's a perfect stand-in for someone who is so insistent that we start to suspect that they're covering something up. It's like this great, you know, psychological insight into that. And so I wanted to kind of praise Hamlet because uh, Shakespeare, you know, he gets all the big things right. And his tragic heroes are tragic in the right ways. But he gets these little things right, too. And these these little moments of psychological insight that he just sprinkles in uh, so well. And, and seemingly he just seemingly had an endless supply of these. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's so interesting. It, it one of the things that I find all the time is that students who uh, the students are reluctant sometimes about Hamlet because it seems to be about court. It's about kings and queens and and princes and and murder. And these are problems that we probably don't have and are and are lucky mostly not to have. And um, and then it turns out to be about about you. And and that's itself just the most remarkable twist. Um, sometimes some of it, it's, and I think that's not always true of Shakespeare. Mm. I think that some plays really keep us at arm's length. I do yeah. not, as an example, feel that I'm ever invited to uh, identify with Macbeth. Mm. Um, it's, that's a different thing. It's, we're playing a different game in that play. Yeah. This play is very much saying like, I know, I know <laughs> that yeah. this, this guy has not, nothing to do with you. Whoever you are, you right. are not Hamlet. Right. And yet, whoever you are, you are Hamlet. And that's, I mean, it's astonishing. Yeah, that is true. Oh, that's beautifully put. Okay, let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back with the rest of our draft into 10 Great Things into Ham- of uh, 10 Great Things We Love About Hamlet. Okay, we're back. Uh, Laurie, what is your number three pick? Okay, number three is going to be in a slightly different direction, and it is this. For my money, I feel like Hamlet has the best opening line of any play at all. (laughs) And it, too, (laughs) it, too, is only two words. Who's there? And I want to put it up. This was my number four. (laughs) Oh, what? Okay, perfect. Perfect. Luckily, I have a backup. But yeah, this is this is excellent. Okay, proceed. This is excellent because I thought, oh, he's going to think I'm really weird about this. and I'm going to have to make this case. No, Um, it's fantastic. Yeah, go ahead. Somebody I wish I knew who to whom to attribute this, but it was it was just something I I read randomly on the Internet one time about somebody arguing for a date where where you took someone to see Hamlet. And as the lights go down, you lean over and you whisper, knock, knock. And and then the play opens, which I I just think is brilliant. Um, Although, of course, it doesn't always necessarily open that way. Um, You know, I, I just like to think about putting it up against um, openings like uh, the, the the ones that that I think most 
would be most often picked, like Richard the Third, mm. for instance, or Twelfth Night, where there's like five puns before yeah. you know before you've even like finished arranging your coat on the seat behind you, and and that's a lot to take in all at once. Whereas th- this play, Shakespeare's like, okay, like it's going to be a long night. You gotta you gotta settle in. <laughs> you got yeah. you gotta be with me here, um, and I'm going to ease you in. And it's very very simple, but it also tells us all of these things that that we need to know all at all at once yeah. and and it does that in two words it tells us it tells us that it's dark right that it's that it's night um which which we do not know in the globe you know an open air um universally lit by the sun theater we we need that information communicated we we know that something is amiss that that something is mm. very wrong here because yeah. the wrong person you know starts speaking um it shows us that the watch is very edgy and we think oh well, what yeah. what, why what is going suspicious? on why, why yeah. is this guy so upset um and it is i mean that is just remarkable to me to to do that in 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 just two words. Yeah. Oh, I love it too. And Shakespeare, you know, he often will give kind of uh, uh, the play in miniature in the first scene, or he sets up the themes in the first scene. And who's there? That's the question for Hamlet. That's the question yeah. we are going to be asking of Hamlet and of, you know, human beings. But it also, you know, you could think of a, a different way he could have started it, where uh, someone, you know, the character is on stage and says, you know, well, as Bernardo, I'm a a sentry, but I'm nervous tonight. And, oh, is that my replacement I hear? You know, but instead (laughs) we get that question, who's there? And it encompasses all of that. You know, we want to know who's there, but we also want to know who's afraid, who's in danger. What is the, what is happening here? And then uh, one of the things so interesting about this being kind of an encapsulation is the person who's there is not an outside threat. It's it's another person from within Denmark. So it's kind of like uh, yeah. this is this inner turmoil and the you know, it really shows how this is a kingdom that's that's on edge, but it's 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 a, a turmoil that comes from within, just as Hamlet is is kind of uh, you know, full of this inner turmoil himself. It's like the the uh, the state of the state has become the state of the individuals. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's a very claustrophobic way to, to open up a play, even as it's one of the few moments that, that is outside. Yeah. And then the next line uh, or the line soon after stand and unfold yourself, which is another, uh, it's like Hamlet in a nutshell, what Hamlet is going to need to do uh yeah for us yeah well and that they they have this conversation you know and he says oh uh, yeah i'm sick at heart and the other guy's like yeah okay well (laughs) good good luck with that aren't we all um which is just a really remarkable response yeah and you and you're not even you know you're not even two minutes in at that point right right oh it's such a great and it's such a great way to just sort of start you know to kick things off yeah with a question, yeah. you know, yeah. and it, uh, yeah. it's almost like silence. We're not clearing our throat anymore. <laughs> the the yeah. play has begun. Oh, uh, yes. Fantastic. Okay. So I will take, um, why don't I take something that I have been kind of interested in? Oh, this was interesting. So 
the way that the play so often has things both ways, just like Hamlet is, you know, to be or not to be. And should we live or should we not? Should we act or should we not? Is Hamlet a hero or an anti-hero? Is he actually a, a hero for not acting as a sort of an existential hero? Is his indecision in some ways the most natural decision for someone in his position to make? And I have a book uh, by Nori Epstein called The Friendly Shakespeare. And they had a little sidebar. She has a little sidebar in there that talks about two instances when Hamlet was banned. And huh? so listen to these listen to these carefully of the different times when Hamlet was banned by different societies. So here's the first one. Under Stalin's regime, Hamlet was banned, the official reason being that Hamlet's indecisiveness and depression were incompatible with the new Soviet spirit of optimism, <laughs> fortitude, and clarity. And then... In uh, 1989, the Boston Globe wrote, quote, William Shakespeare's Hamlet has been banned from an Israeli detention camp for those arrested during the Palestinian uprisings, a human rights group said yesterday in Jerusalem. It has something to do with Hamlet's wondering at one point if it's better to take up arms or suffer in silence. So it's like... Uh, you know, the the first society banned it because they thought it could lead to indecision and lethargy. And another society banned it because it could cause a revolt. And yeah. so it, it's like this mirror. And, and it reminded me of Kenneth Branagh when he, he does his yeah. uh, To Be or Not To Be, where he does it in front of those mirrors, where it's like, who's Hamlet? What version of him is real? Which one do we trust? What is this? What is this play? It's It's not just the, I mean, famously, it's the... It has the uh, the theater being a mirror to the world, but it's also a mirror in the sense of everything doubling on itself and us getting these different images and, and visions of what the play is and, and what it can be. Yeah. Oh, yes. I love that. And it's and we see it, uh, you know, in a very like there are lots of things that come in pairs in this in this mm. play. Mm -hmm. we, we, we get two dads and, and we get two two women in Hamlet's yeah. life and um, two two sets of friends, really. Yeah. Uh, and and lots of things like that that are uh, that are married to contemporaries who also lose their dads. So we can we can see how else you might respond to this yeah. to this tragedy. And the play um, within a play. And the play within the play. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So what are we up to now? Number four for you, I think. Number four, and I'm going to switch them because because it's a good transition. Which is one of the things that I love most about this play is that I think it has a happy ending, which or I think Hamlet gets mm. his happy ending which yeah. might be different um and and that and that too i think is another one of those strange dualities strange strange mirrors mm -hmm. um the way in which it is a tragedy is is pretty obvious because everybody dies <laughs> but the ways in which um it is it is actually I, I leave the theater feeling really happy for hamlet himself who gets mm. what he wants and yeah. it's pretty remarkable um right. this is a guy who is already talking about killing himself several times but and not even i mean he does talk about killing himself but but just a desire to die just a desire to to be done mm -hmm. with this already before he even finds out about what happened to his father yeah. and um and and indeed he he his quietus makes i mean he 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 gets he he gets out of the he gets out of this life at the end of this at the end of this play but he does it by um with, without destroying himself without without destroying his soul right. his his father the ghost comes and tells him to do a thing which is essentially impossible which is look this is, i have this really tough ask i need you to avenge my death but also don't condemn yourself to hell and listen please don't upset your mom 
And that is essentially impossible. Mm, <laughs> and yeah. um, and yet Hamlet figures out a way to to do that over the course of this thing. And um, and indeed he he does avenge his father's murder. He he does do it without without condemning himself by the by the rules which he must follow. Uh, and I guess his mother isn't upset because she's died. But he you know he hasn't killed her. Um, and right. and she seems to to have come to some peace. And so I though though what I have seen is is this you know is, is obviously an epic tragedy. I also come to the end of it and think like okay I I feel I feel happy I feel happy for Hamlet himself. Yeah. Given the circumstances, his resolution is satisfying. Yeah, right. Yes. And satisfying for him. Not, right. not, right. not, in fact, I think it's probably quite a bit more satisfying for him than, than for me. Right. It could have been so much worse for him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, we could be thinking, oh no, by your own, you know, by, by the way you view this, you are now headed to hell. But we don't right. think that. Exactly. Or not only are you headed to hell, but you didn't, you didn't do anything. You needed, you're, you needed to avenge this murder and you needed to get this psychopath off the throne because he's (laughs) going to drag this country down. (laughs) And and he, and he manages to stick around long enough to do that. And, and clearly he's very tempted to just throw up his hands and say, you know what, I'm out of (laughs) here and and leave Denmark to its fates. And, uh, and he, and he, and he doesn't. Right. Okay, well, that leads me into my next pick, which is uh, Hamlet and Gertrude. Um, We often see, I mean, when I started reading this, we were kind of immersed in the Freudian reading of uh, that, that Hamlet's indecision comes from his Oedipal feelings and that Claudius is only doing what Hamlet wanted to do himself, which is to kill his father and sleep with his mother. And so that led to his, you know, how could he how could he kill Claudius for doing what he himself would have done? And and I never really bought into that so much. And I I think people have no longer kind of attribute it quite quite as strongly as they did back when I was first reading the play. But there's another reading that Hamlet is avenging his father. This is it's an insult to his honor, and he needs to act in order to uh, remedy that. And and Gertrude and Claudius have sullied sullied the honor, and Hamlet therefore needs to avenge it. And and the ghost is there to remind Hamlet that it should happen that way. But I have a third reading, oh good, uh, which you know I I look at it as every mother is also a woman, just like every father is also a man. But let's focus on mothers. So Hamlet (laughs) is looking at Gertrude and saying, essentially, and I'm not saying he says this in the text, but just given the the situation here, Hamlet could basically be saying, if you, you put being a mother in, if you had put being a mother in front of everything else, you would have supported me as king. And instead... You've remained a woman. You've prioritized sex and love. And he's Hamlet's sort of famously disgusted by the idea of his mother having sex with Claudius. But he's yeah. basically saying, you know, you're you haven't stepped aside to let me take the throne. You've chosen to be a woman instead of my mother. And it immediately reminded me of the relationship in the seagull which, uh, of course, is obsessed with Hamlet. And I didn't really put it together until just this reading. But I think Chekhov had the same idea, that here's a young man who's trying to make it, trying to crowd the new generation out of the way. And the young man's mother says, not so fast. I'm not ready to give up my place yet. I'm not old. I'm not a has-been. I'm not retiring. I'm not here to be the mother of a great person. I'm here to be a great person. And and I'm not going to live in your shadow. You still live in mine. And the son is... 
You know, it's one thing if it's just a generational struggle, but when the son says, but you're my mother, you <laughs> above anyone else should be supporting my growth and, and sh you should be in favor of me taking control and taking power here. And yet you're the one blocking it. Why? Because you chose being an individual instead of, you know, in, in the seagull, yeah. it's being an artist and a celebrity and, and in Hamlet, it's being a queen, but it's, it's, you, know, you chose that over being my mother. And yeah. it just, uh, it really drives it for me. I, I think it, it really shows that I think a lot of, of Hamlet's, what he says about Gertrude, it's a lot of flailing around. It's a lot of the symptoms yeah. coming out, you know, that, that <laughs> this is, uh, his feeling toward her. But I think what he, what he has is something very elemental and, and much simpler than the Freudian reading, which is just, you're supposed to be on my side. You're supposed to be my mom and you're, you're not acting like it. Oh, I love that. Does that make you feel more sympathetic towards Hamlet or less sympathetic towards Hamlet? Oh, I think I feel like it's more recognizable to me and more universal to me. That it's, yeah. that it's not just something where you would have to be in the situation where, you know, well, what if I was a prince and, and my father was the king and I had these obligations and there was, you know, I was next in line to the throne and all of that, but more like... What about, you know, people whose parents get divorced and, and yeah. the son has a hard time with the stepfather or, yeah. uh, you know, just the the families deciding how they're going to spend their money. And, yeah. um, you know, the, the kids saying like, well, why, aren't you, <laughs> why don't you want to spend it on my graduate school or, you know, and the mother saying, yeah. well, no, I'm I'm taking a, a cruise here. I'm, I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> spend some time with my new husband or, you know, whatever it is. But it just feels like this feeling of betrayal is not necessarily as doesn't have to be as grand as a, a king, uh, you know, feeling like you've been formally betrayed because you've allied with the wrong uh, people yeah. in, a, in a dynasty. But it can be as simple as if I can't count on you as my mom, then yeah. who do I get to count on? But you can easily look at that from the mother's point of view and say, well, you know, just because you're a mother doesn't mean you have to be like the queen's mom and uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and be ceremonial. Like you also are a person and you could be quite a young person. It's not like like these people are all in their 70s or 80s or something. It's like there's a lot of life left to live. And and for uh, Gertrude, although she does kind of apologize or she acknowledges and says our, our marriage was over hasty, but yeah. it, it, you do feel <laughs> like, you know, well, is she supposed to now just say uh, the world is going to revolve around Hamlet or or is it okay right. for her to say um, I'm going to continue as, a, as the person I essentially was before uh, my husband was murdered? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that, that read is so nice because it, it does really beautiful things with the second half of the play when she really, she really does do what he has asked of her. Like she, she mm -hmm. comes around on that point. She, yeah. It, yeah. I think there's just, it's a, it is a lovely read of, it gives her some nice agency in acts four and five. Yeah. Yeah. And the seagull that, is like that, that too, it. you know, where it's like the, the mother still cares for, you know, the mother's not yeah. wicked and evil. It's right. not 100%. It, it's just the mother is also saying, you know, why do I have to give up my career just because you want to have your career now? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So we are up to number five. Okay. And I'm going to change my number five because of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> 
um, and actually what I just said, frankly, too, it's going to sound like a contradiction, but I don't think it is, um, which is I want to say something about the ending, about the ending of this play. Mm. Uh, it is, to my mind, the most purely tragic of of Shakespeare's tragedies. Mm. Um, you know, that is, I think, well, I think Macbeth pretty much gets what's coming to him. I think that mm. Othello, you know, however, however tricked and lied to he certainly is, is, is baselessly faithless and an abusive murderer. Um, you know, and I mean, Lear has, it's a complicated play, obviously. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he's an old man and, and like, okay, he, he makes some really bad decisions and he's going to have to die. Whereas Hamlet really does not have to die. And it is a great tragedy that he does because, because, oh, what a noble mind is here or thrown. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a genius. He's a very powerful, mm. thoughtful, intelligent, loving, philosophical man who, who we should all hope to have on, on our thrones, <laughs> leading our, our people. Mm. Um, and, and he does, and he dies. And, and that is, is very purely, purely tragic, purely sad. And sometimes Gertrude's death is, is also very noble and, and, and sometimes it isn't as much. Um, and, you know, but I think it would be in, in that read that you just gave, which is, which would make it, which would make it all the much sadder. And so I, I think often at the end of these plays, you know, there's just like lots of dead people and, and, and most of them were stupid and most of them did something that was going to earn their death. And, and that's just not quite true at the end of Hamlet. Mm. Yeah, it's that's great. And, you know, I was going to conclude with something. I'm going <laughs> to skip to something else because I'd rather just uh, I'd rather just piggyback off of that. And that is this quote I have by uh, Orson Welles. Yeah. And he says, what Hamlet is before he is anything is an authentic, tragic hero who is himself a man of genius. And once Shakespeare had written him, he never wrote about a man of any genius at all again. Once he'd written Hamlet and discovered that there was no actor who could play him, he turned to something else. Wow. <laughs> wow. Which is pretty interesting. I mean, it's Orson yeah. Welles. Like, interesting. He has such a... Orson Welles is so good at saying things that are like, you almost think that can't be true. And then, but then you, <laughs> you know, like, is it really true that no actor could play him? But you think, I almost don't care. I like the idea so much that... First of all, that he recognizes that Hamlet was a man of genius, but also that, you know, if anyone would think that he could play Hamlet, it would be Orson Welles. So yes. he's maybe yeah. sort of acknowledging, you know, how difficult the part is to play, but also just the idea. It's su such a provocative idea that Shakespeare would have said, nobody is going to get this right because I have made him such a man of genius. And then he never wrote another man of genius. <laughs> yeah, I think Prospero would come and and yeah. kick Orson Welles' ass, but <laughs> um, <laughs> really, really an interesting idea. Um, yeah. I also really love the idea of. I mean, I love the position where like I cannot play this role, and therefore this role cannot be played. <laughs> it cannot be played. Yep. And so Shakespeare sort of quietly just gave up and said, "Well." I gave it a try. It's almost like a a, a composer or something writing a, a part for a soprano that's so difficult and goes so high. It's saying, yeah. you know, there will never be someone born who can sing this aria in this way. I mean, it's uh, it's such a uh, it's such a, a an interesting idea, even if it it's is. maybe not true. Who knows? Well, and it's beautiful because it means that 
we keep getting people trying. Yeah. There will never be a shortage of people who want to try to get it right. Right, right. People trying to climb that mountain that uh, has this, uh, you know, such a such a challenging mountain for them to climb. Yeah. Okay. Well, did we cover everything you wanted to say? I know you have a lot of other picks. <laughs> did you want to mention any honorable mentions or summarize them or anything? I mean, we I could definitely do this for days and days and days. <laughs> there, there is there is no way that we we could have exhausted all of the things that I love about this play. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I think five was was good. It was good uh, ballpark. <laughs> okay. Well, let's leave things there then. The new book is called One Two Three. Laurie Frankel, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. It was absolutely my pleasure. There we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Lori Frankel for joining me. I had so much fun talking to her about Hamlet. Her book is called One, Two, Three, and it's available now wherever you buy your books. You can learn more about the podcast at historyofliterature.com and sign up to support the show at patreon.com literature. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>